Being a professional isn't about the money you make, the position you hold, your level of expertise or fame. It's the motivation and the attitude you bring to your work. A desire for always learning and improving and balancing your creative output with getting the business done. Welcome and join the Creating Pros. Hi and welcome back to Creating Pros. I'm your host Jim Nettles and this week I have brought in the one and only Mel Todd to come in and talk about what's it like to finish up series, what's it like to move over into being a full-time writer, and we'll probably talk a little bit about her talk that's coming up here at 20 Books to 50K. Mel, thanks for jump, uh, joining me this week. Thanks for having me, Jim. So um, let's talk about a little bit just about you and kind of the move in. Um, you want to give everybody kind of a quick bio and all that kind of fun stuff? Uh, well, as I said, I'm Mel Todd. I've been writing for a while. I started actually publishing back about 2013 and thinking around doing stuff. And then in 2016, life kind of kicked me in the teeth. And I decided to write what you can see behind me, which is sci-fi and fantasy. Why I had started out with romance, I, I you know, the, the choices you make in hindsight are highly questionable. But I started writing this and had much more fun and had a series really take off about two years ago. And since then, I have been writing like crazy and in january of 2023 i took the leap which i still question my sanity at times and went to being a full-time author so that's what i'm doing now writing and trying to the only person who gets to yell at me now is me <laughs> yeah it sucks when we're our, when we're our own boss yeah it really sucks our, yeah. our boss is always an ass always always um, so, uh, let's talk a little bit about kind of where you got that start in the writing bug in, in 2013. Like you said, you, you started down the romance path. Yeah, no, that, that's not when I got the writing bug. The writing bug was probably set firmly in me about the age of six. I mean, I remember that I entered a short story contest. I've got to have been 15 or under. And I don't remember much except A, I didn't win, and B, it involved the Pegasus. But that's what I, why I can say what the age range was. And then I, I found, you remember the old Macs where you had the uh, dot matrix printers, so you had to scroll it on the little things? Yeah, I found reams and reams of that with like novels written on it and paper, you know, longhand where I'd written out novels. So that's always been in the back of my mind. It's just that in the late 70s, early 80s, the only way to publish anything was to go through the whole traditional route. And I was well aware of the fact that you almost had better luck playing the lottery, or at least raffles, you would have better luck. And since I never won raffles, I didn't really ever think of that as a valid path forward for me it was just something i was going to do for myself i was never going to worry about it and then in about 2002 2003 one of my friends introduced me to fan fiction and i went oh this is fun i get to write about people that i already like and get to have them do new things and so i started writing fan fiction and and i have like half a million words of fan fiction out there so i wrote quite a bit well, about 2011, 
one of my fellow fanfic authors was like, hey, Melissa, Mel, you seen this thing Amazon's doing? They just, you might want to think about publishing some of your original stuff. And I went, really? He's like, yeah, they're actually paying me for my books. And I went, well, that's kind of cool. I, 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 I could do this. And <laughs> it, it is an odd thing that writers are both the most egotistical and have the least amount of ego at the exact same time. We will take a thousand praises and all we'll ever remember is the one negative comment. So I went, well, I can't write original fiction yet. My stuff isn't good enough. I'm only writing fanfic. So I tried to find a writer's group. Well, the writer's group that I fell into was mostly erotic romance writers. And don't get me wrong. These ladies are wonderful. I'm still friends with them, with some of them to this day. Uh, some of them are went other ways. Some of them are actively publishing and making good money. But this was the hardest lesson I ever learned about making sure that you are presenting your work to the right audience. I was not presenting my work to the right audience. Me giving them sci-fi novels when they're all looking for erotic romance, the, it, it wasn't a good match. So I did that for a couple of years. There's a few things out there under Renee Lovins, which was my romance pen name. And I mean, they're good books and I don't regret writing them. In fact, I still have some odd romance ideas I'd like to follow up someday. But it's much more fun to blow up Australia as opposed to trying to write sex scenes. And I'm very bad at writing. What did you learn from work starting out in fanfic? Mainly how to tell a story. I mean, fanfic fans are pretty, pretty harsh if you aren't telling them something they want to read. And also how to justify character actions because you start writing something that that character would never do under any circumstances, you would better have provided a good story justification for them doing it. It's kind of interesting with fan fiction. You don't really have to worry much about setting up your world because everybody who's reading it already knows the world. If I'm writing a fanfic about Harry Potter I don't have to describe Hogwarts. I don't have to describe Diagon Alley because everybody already knows what it looks like. So you already have your world building completely done for you. What you get to focus on is telling interesting stories because if I'm just doing a pure Harry Potter fanfic, I don't even have to particularly do any character building with Harry because you all know how Harry acts. I know how Harry, Hermione, and Ron interact. And it's already done for you. But on the flip side, it lets you do that if you want. Like, I could write a fan fiction about a new person coming in. Well, I may not have to do any characterization work with Harry, Ron, and Hermione, but I do with the new person. Or if I'm going to have them do things where other things change. And I think it really gave me a lot of grounding in just telling stories. That and being able to just put your work out there, except the slings and arrows of commenting and keep on going because if you don't get a tough skin you won't be able to publish your work because people are mean 
Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to see. And I mean, I would even argue to an extent people in the fanfic world can be a little bit harsher even than people giving you grief about your own work because they've already, if they're already going in and reading fiction and having seen a lot of fanfic that goes everything from, hey, I'm just creating the next monster of the week for Supernatural Universe or something like that up to the, um, shall we call them more interesting interpretations of characters um things you get to see you got to be a good storyteller um you do and, and i mean there are some fanfic authors i haven't checked in uh, up on this lately but it was a retelling of basically harry potter last time i checked the work was like at 2.3 million words and the story was still going and she still has people following her for 2.3 million words. Note, that is how many words I have overall completely published. And she's still working on this one story. Now, don't get me wrong. It, it's covering years and years and years. But, yeah, you have to be able to tell a good story or people are going to go read something else. So now you're you're wrapping up your second series. But before mm -hmm. we talk about that one, let's talk about the first one. Um, you had a nice sci-fi shifter series going on. So let's talk, let's talk a little bit about that world. Series of novels, novelettes. Um, really <clears throat> kind of a fun premise in there. So what was that series like to do? So the Caitlin Chronicles started off with the fact that uh, a few years ago, there was a really, really big spike in the faded mate trope for shifters. You know, he has to find his mate in the next 30 days or, you know, that they're always lurking in the shadows, but nobody can know about them. And I liked the werewolf and shifter aspects. I was really, really, really bored with the whole nobody can know about them. And so I wanted to write a story where everybody knew about shifters, where they weren't something that was hidden, where it was out there. And I just kept tugging on that string. I'd been thinking about it for a couple of years. I wanted to figure out a way to do shifters without magic because I, I really didn't like the whole faded mate thing. I mean, don't get me wrong. I still read them. There's some really good ones out there. But after a while, it was just the same story over and over and over again. And so I was like, okay, how do you do this? How do you have shifters and make it public? And I you know, want to make it uh, current day. And eventually I went, well, if I'm not going to have magic, I have to have science. And if you're going to have science, it becomes science fiction. And at that point, it just kind of evolved from there. So I ended up having the earth. Now, if you haven't read the series, I'm giving away kind of the, what I teased at in the first book. But basically there's a race of aliens that goes about seeding planets so that they can create cannon fodder. And they take planets that are a certain level of technology and basically seed them with nanobots that go in, take over the cells and just reprogram your body into being animals that are native to your world. And then they swoop in to save everybody saying oh this is so horrible we know how to fix them you know and we can take them with us and we'll take care of them and then they go and use all of these people who are now animals as cannon fodder for their war 
And that was actually a lot of fun. I mean, it was fun to get to pull on those strings and figure out how to make something that is global focus around just this one person. Because that was one of the problems I have with a lot of movies and stuff is the person comes running in with a message from the aliens. In reality, they're going to go, oh, thank you very much. And they're either going to shoo you off or they're going to lock you in a room for your own protection. And you're not going to have anything else to do with the story. So it was fun trying to figure out how to keep her in the center of the story when it was literally global. And then I wanted to write stories about what how the other characters dealt with stuff. And the biggest problem I ran into, and this is one of the sad parts about trying to do it for a living, is the series just didn't catch on. I mean, I have pretty good reviews. I have people who really enjoyed the series, but I looked at it and I went, I could write this series for the next 50 years, but if nobody's reading it, I'd rather go write something else. And so I kind of just tied the series up. I left it in such a way that I can go write more things in this world because it's, it definitely wasn't a, Oh, problem taken care of thing. It was, oops, <laughs> you now have a universe. Um, but one of the things you have to do as an author is make choices as to what you're going to or not going to write. I went, this series isn't selling well enough, so I'm going to go try writing something else. And that led me to my next series, which did take off, which is the Twisted Luck Urban Fantasy series. So let's talk about that. What what brought you to this particular series? Uh, if you're old like me, you might remember a TV series with D.B. Sweeney called, no, not D.B. Sweeney, somebody else, called Strange Luck, where the guy just had Strange Luck. And I always thought that was kind of a neat idea. And I wanted to just have this girl who always just had the weirdest things happen to her. But it took me quite a while to actually come up with a storyline. <laughs> you can't just have... A Somebody who has strange things happen to them. You have to have, no, it was D.B. Sweeney. The other one I'm thinking of is the newspaper where he got yesterday's oh. newspaper today. But yeah, D.B. Sweeney was the strange luck guy. Also in um, Cutting Edge, if you're a fan of old 80s movies. But that's again where I sit and I pull at the string and pull at the string, trying to figure out where a story is with the idea. Because you know, it's great to have an idea, but you actually have to have a plot. <laughs> and eventually I stumbled on to it being magic. And I kind of wrote the first book. And you talk about a story taken on a life of its own. This series took a life of its own. Um, magic became much more complicated, which was one of the reasons I didn't want to write magic. But yeah, magic became much more complicated and... The characters became larger than life, and they pretty much ended up taking over my life. I've been writing that series for three years now. There are eight books at over 800,000 words. There is one, two, three novellas, and the only story I've wrapped up is Corey's story, the main character. This is on an earth that's just like ours, except magic entered into it in the 1850s and kind of changed a little bit of everything. I still have like 300 years worth of stories to tell. So that's what I'm 
trying to wrap, finish wrapping up the Twisted Luck series, start a new epic fantasy series, but then start also another trilogy within this world, which is called the Tronian Universe, just because it is such an interesting world with so many little things that it's, it's kind of like our history, it went this direction, and in this world, it went this direction when you come to historical moments. And sometimes the changes are huge, and other times they're tiny. Like an example of a huge change would be in my world, uh, China still has a royal family and an em emperor and empress, okay? Whereas in our world, they went to communism in the early, you know, early to mid-1900s. A tiny change would be in our world, selective service started during World War II and drafted men into service. In my world, selective service started at the same time, but it drafts all mages, regardless of gender or anything else. You have to do that same service that we did just with selective service now applies to all mages. So some of the changes are really fun and you get to just do different things with a history you already think you know. Well, one of the fun things with, with the story in the arc is core it is it's told really from a very personal level. It's not all happening in a year or two. It's it's a life arc, right? It mm -hmm. starts with her basically at that 18, trying to figure out who she's gonna be and just trying to survive, and then going through pretty much an entire living arc. Um, what was it like to kind of figure out somebody's lifetime like that? Uh, well, the thing that I have the most fun with is to constantly change her perceptions. And, and it, it's little things that you don't realize how much, you know, we all joke that we turn into our parents, you know, because when we're young, we're railing against all the things. And then by the time we get to their age, we're doing the exact same things that we were railing against as teenagers. And a lot of it is, is just learning and understanding all of the other things that you can't see. Why did that with her? So the first book, yeah, she's 19 going on 20. And the second book, she's 20 going on 21. And then the third book, she's 24. And so I'm jumping. And as I jump her age up, I'm also shifting her perceptions because she's starting to understand that there's a lot of unseen and unsaid things in life and that what she first saw and would take it one way actually realizes there's a lot more complexity. The easiest example is, and I have a lot of subversive mes messaging in my books, if you pay attention to it. And a lot of it is, is that, if you are trained to do something, you mo lots of the times don't look past the training to figure out why and what this achieves. And so everybody in school is taught how to use their magic. Well, if you're only taught how to eat with your right hand, you never think about doing anything other than eating with your right hand until something happens to that hand. It is just something you're like, well, of course, that's what I would use my right hand for. And even if somebody said, well, why don't you eat with your left hand? You would go, well, it's easier to eat with my right hand. And so by training somebody in this very narrow, tiny box of how to use their magic, it lets you control them. 
because if this is all you ever teach somebody, they don't think to go look at all the other stuff they can do. And that's one of the things that Corey ends up unraveling a lot is figuring out just how the government controls people, how the way they are educated actually changes how people perceive how they use their magic and how the government is much happier to have ha fat and happy mages because fat and happy mages aren't actually out there seeing what else they can do with magic. And I do lots of stuff like that where I'm pointing out that we tend to have our own blinders and flaws. But the other big thing that I did a lot with Corey with the, with her arc was trying to make sure that she didn't ever have the ability to just say, oh, problem solved. It, it's taken care of. And having her get stuck in her own easy way out. I mean, if you're a busy mom and you have eggs, you're probably just going to make scrambled eggs for dinner. They're fast, they're easy. And if you do it often enough, that's going to become your first choice every single time. It's her being aware of the fact that her first choice isn't necessarily the best option. But it's hard to convince yourself to remember to go and buy potatoes and steak and everything else so that you have other options. I don't know if my analogy is making any sense. It's just a lot of it is learning what else you can do when you don't have a choice. And that's one of the things that I do a lot with Corey is she is not the perfect person for this job. There's a, probably a lot of other people that would have been better, but she's the person who's stuck here. And so she is doing her absolute best to try to save everybody, even though she knows that there was probably somebody who would have been better at this than her, but she's the only person there. Well, and I think there's some other things that feed into that. I mean, much of her backstory is being an orphan without being an orphan, right? Her mm -hmm. parents are there. They just basically disowned her. Um, and so I do this a lot. Um, you know, it's the standard trope that every main character is always an orphan because you want to give them the traumatic backstory. And I wanted to play a little bit on how people react to grief, especially truly traumatic grief. And everybody handles it differently. It, it's a one of those sayings that when you lose a child as a married couple, either your marriage gets stronger or it falls apart. And there's almost nothing in between. Either your marriage gets stronger or you end up divorced because the trauma of ha having a child die is so polarizing. Well, I went, okay, how can I take the fact that people do weird things with grief and twist it to give me a character who has parents that has parents that literally cannot stand to look at her and make it so that she doesn't have a choice except to be the strong one because I'm going to be torturing her so much through the next 30 years of her life. Well, and I think that setup creates the strength in a very different way. And also mm -hmm. how she values the people that she creates family with. And that's, that to me is one of the strongest part points is that 
very centralized found family and how you create those real relationships. And I think that's, that's the fun part through that as well. I'm pretty big on found family or the fam, the best families are the ones you make because we tend to America in general and Western culture overall has become very, very narrow in what's the definition of a family. You have a man, you have a woman, you have 2.5 kids. That's it. Occasionally you have grandparents that are included. And historically, family was always a lot more fluid because you had sisters and cousins and aunts and uncles that you lived with and that you would often have multiple little groups within larger family groups because those were the people who would gravitate together. And I'm not necessarily talking uh, sexual relationships, but these were the people who you could discuss things with, you could lean on. And up until relatively recently in Western culture, and by recent, I mean the last 150 years or so, you had those extended family and network groups. Uh, you still see them to a certain extent in very close uh, religious societies, such as the Amish and uh, Mormons. You will see a lot more of the whole having a best female friend who you do almost everything with who most of your life. One of the problems is, is that as we get older and we grow, I mean, there are some of us who are still lucky enough to have high school friends, but for most of us, time, distance, life path changes that and you lose these sort of friendships that in many ways are more formative for who you become than what your parents taught you are you learn how to be friends you learn how to do things and i think that this found family idea is that you are choosing who to have the relationships with even though they may not be within that narrow definition of what we currently say family should be. And that makes it a lot stronger, or at least I think it is. I mean, I have a pretty good extended network of friends that I can lean on, but even so the people that you stay in contact with over years in some ways are the ones that you know are always going to be there. Or I'm talking out of my hat. You know, it's 50-50 either way. That's called being a writer. <laughs> yes, it is. I lie for a living. So what does it feel like to finally, after three years, kind of be bringing this story to a, to a close, even though it's in a much bigger universe? I think I've been having depression. <laughs> this last month has been oddly hard, and I'm not really quite sure why, but... I have had Corey and Joe and Sable and Carillion and Esmer and Tiersane and Good Grief, Stephen and Dira and Banyar. I've had all of these characters in my head for so many years at this point where they were always talking to me. And a lot of them are still going, but I'm not done. You didn't tell about the one time when, or, hey, but what about this idea over here? And I'm like, guys, go away. <laughs> I, I I I could probably spend the rest of my life doing little. Well, there was this one time when stories from all of them, but I don't have any stories that are jumping in that are actual 
book stories, if that makes sense. I mean, I have lots of little, you know, funny stories to tell at dinner stories. I don't have any, oh, look, here's an actual 100,000 word story. (laughs) So, I I mean, I'm not going to say they're not going to pop back up, but right now they're they're busy kind of enjoying the retirement, if that makes sense. And I just have to learn how to let them be retired and go tell other people's stories. What is it but for you, right? I mean, let's let's think about that idea of all the time you've spent with them. And yeah, you, know, you were just talking about a little bit of the, the grief factor and starting some of the other new projects, even though some of these are going to be in that same universe. What is it like to tell the characters, go sit in the corner and be quiet for a while? it it doesn't help I mean to some extent I really kind of expect to turn around and see Corillian looking at me because he is by far one of the most in your face of all of my characters Uh, it's hard it kind of feels like moving you know where you've packed everything up you're standing in this empty room and you can see all the ghosts of where everything was And you know that you don't get to unpack those boxes again. You have to go get new things to put in this room. And it kind of feels almost like a violation as you start putting up other pictures and put in a different couch and a different place. It's it's really kind of harder than I expected it to be. And I've never had this level of post-project drop, which, you know, quite a few authors will talk about that, you know, you, you, the, the kind of, endorphin drop that you get when you finish something i hadn't ever had it because i always walked at the next one to write and the next one to write and the next one to write and i don't have it this time and i kind of feel that i'm both doing myself a disservice by not letting myself curl up and grieve and at the same time thinking i'm absolutely ridiculous because i feel sad and i'm depressed because I can't write stories about these people anymore when technically nobody's stopping me except of how I ended stories. So that means I can't be mad at anybody except myself. Yeah. You know, never ever talk to a writer about brain health. You're going to be sadly disappointed. So just as a preview, what, what does some of the next upcoming new stuff look like? I have an epic fantasy that I'm working on that is actually uses an idea that I have never seen another epic fantasy do, at least not off the top of my head. Uh, in my in the epic fantasy I'm working on, the gods actually live on Earth. Well, for the most part, they also have other places, but they're gods, and they have each of them has like their own people. These are my people. And they have manipulated and tweaked and mutated these people. So you technically have about seven races. And the races all look physically different from each other. But that's because the gods have sat there and gone, well, you need to have this to be better at this. Or you need to be able to do this. You know, things like some of them have really sharp, uh, like, claws instead of nails. Some have uh process oxygen better so they can run faster others have very large lungs so that they can dive deep you know things like this but one of the fun effects and it's something that people will have to consider 
is that if you marry into another race's families and stuff and you make the choice and it's always a choice to accept their God over your old God, those gods start changing you to look like everybody else. So it's going to be interesting right now. I'm trying to figure out because I have like some things like there's no slavery. There just isn't any because no God would tolerate another God having their people enslaved. Just not going to happen. So right now I'm trying to figure out how something bad could happen. And I have to figure out how to distract the gods, but luckily gods are easily distracted. Shiny objects. Shiny objects. Shiny objects. Yeah. So I've got that. Um, I am working on a Victorian something. I, I, I don't know if it's quite urban fantasy. I actually think I figured out what the plot is. But it's going to be set in the same Turnian universe, except late 1800s. And it's going to be about three siblings, a brother, a sister, and then the bastard brother. And they're going to upset the world just a little tiny bit. (laughs) And a lot of what they do is going to be codified into the world that what Hori now exists in. So I've got that. And then I've got... Oh, a list of story ideas about this long and a nonfiction book that I'm going to be working on. So, yeah, my problem right now is just getting myself to focus and actually get progress on any of those instead of moping. Well, and you also did have one other new kickoff this year. Oh, yeah, I published um, a standalone urban fantasy in what we're calling the Duos universe. And it's basically a shared universe that I wrote with a bunch of other people. That one, I technically at some point may write another two books to turn it into a trilogy. But it kind of went eh on a sales aspect. So I'm kind of just leaving it out there until I feel either get a really great story that pops into my head or... I start seeing some significant movement. Again, money. I have bills. I have food. I have clothes I need to buy. So that does mean I need to make sure that I'm writing things that are marketable or saleable, depending on how you look at it. Let's actually talk about the business side of it for just a little bit. Because this is one of the things I don't think a lot of people necessarily understand. Is when when you do make that hop to from doing it on the side, doing it part-time, hobbying, fun, and all that sort of thing, too. I'm doing this for a living, right? It's that I'm moving that full-on shift into being an entrepreneur. I'm, I'm creating product. I'm getting stuff out the door, and I'm making decisions, at least in part, having to blend the creative storytelling aspects with the, the business and the money-making aspects. And the fact that there's times that there's stories we'd like to tell but not sure that those stories will sell Um, and balancing that against, well, here's the business. How do I keep the business going? How do I put more words out the door? Because ultimately software can be expensive. Um, Hardware can be expensive. Time can be expensive. You know, what, what has this shift into full-time writer been like for you? (laughs) A lot more stress about money. Um, I mean, I am definitely still in the 1% of authors. I actually make six figures a year off of my writing. 
but I still have to look at everything I write and go, how do I market this? So I am not a huge fan of right to market, but at the same time, I also acknowledge that you have to write to market. And here's what the difference is. Uh, A few years ago, and it's slowly, slowly dying now, zombies were the thing. Zombie stories were selling as fast as they could get written. And so popular opinion would be, oh, you should be writing zombie stories. Well, the catch is, is if you really, really don't like zombie stories and you write a zombie story, your story's going to suck. It, it only does you good to write to market if it is something that you actually have a story that you want to tell that is within that market, be it erotic romance, monster romance, zombie stories, uh, you know, whatever. There, there's always something. Right now, it seems to still be billionaire uh, secret babies. If that isn't a story that you have a desire to actually tell, then don't write to market because it's not going to be good. You're going to hate writing it, etc. Um, But at the same time, one of the problems I've always had, because I'm weird, is I write stories that don't fit the nice, solid genres. So... This, this is one of my lectures. You write a story and then you figure out what the genre is. You don't figure out your genre and then write the story because genres are 100% about marketing. They are so somebody who goes, oh, I like sci-fi stuff knows that they will probably like your stuff. They are not, oh, well, I have to write a sci-fi story. no. You just have to write a story that you can market as sci-fi if that's how you want to market it. Um, So it's a lot of looking at stuff like that and then also looking at silly things. Like, okay, so I've got this really great story idea. How in the world would I get a cover for that? And by that, I mean, is there a way I can create a cover that is going to tell somebody looking at the cover what sort of story this is? You know, or is it something where it has to wait until I can sell a book sheerly on my name and the fact that I wrote it? You have to think about things like that. You need to think about the fact that lots of writers nowadays have been burned by authors starting series and not finishing them. And I'm not necessarily saying that this is because the author went, oh, nope, I'm not making money. Lots of times, especially in the traditional world, the um, publisher would go, nope, your first two books in this trilogy haven't sold well enough. We're not willing to continue and we don't want your next book. And they just dropped the author. Well, that means that people out there got book one and got book two and never got book three because the sales of book one and two weren't good enough. So that wasn't the author's fault. The author couldn't do anything. You have other people who are extremely slow writers, such as, uh, Jane All, who wrote The Clan of the Cave Bear stuff. I think I waited a decade for that last book. You have other authors who had life explode on them. Um, one of them named Melanie Ron, who I was really mad at for years, wrote first two books of a trilogy, and she's never written the last one because life apparently exploded in her face. So you have all of that that you have to take into consideration. 
and know that the odds are that if you're writing a long series, you may not see very many sales until you have like four books out or five because people want to know, they want proof that you have a good chance of finishing the series, okay? Which is probably one of the reasons why I now tell people not to write eight book series because I'm stupid. From what I have seen, the best bet is to write in trilogies. You write the trilogy, you go, have it mostly written, go boom, boom, boom when it comes to releases, and then it's done. And then if you're really smart, you're like Mercedes Lackey, who writes trilogy sets where this is a complete story arc, this is a complete story arc, and together, they're another complete story arc. You have to be good. I don't know if I'm that good yet, but I'm going to try. Because that way people are getting things in completion and... It's also wonderful for them bundling them into single books. You can sell them as omnibuses, yada, yada, yada. The other issue that you have to think about more is I do lots of conventions and I enjoy doing conventions. If you only have one or two book series or one or two series, and they're both really long series, you technically only have two books on your table you can sell because nobody's going to buy book five if they haven't read book one. And most people are only going to buy book one because they then need to see, especially if they don't know you, they want to see if they like your writing, if they like the story, if they like everything else. Well, that makes it really hard to have a table that makes it look like you have lots of books because you technically only have two books that people are interested in buying, which makes it really hard to A, make money selling. So there's all of these little things that have nothing to do with story that you're having to take into effect. So like I said, I'm working on epic fantasy. It's either going to be a standalone or a duology. I have to see how the, it, if it comes out to be a 300,000 word story, guess what? It's going to be a duology because I'm not printing a 300,000 word book. Um, but that gives me another completed standalone that I can have on my table. If I do the trilogy, then that's the trilogy I can have on my table. I can then do that also as an omnibus, yada, yada, yada. There's all these other things. Also, one of the reasons I'm writing the nonfiction book is that gives me leverage to do other things to increase income streams. Because now I will have a nonfiction book because there are lots of people who only read nonfiction. And it gives me something that I can then market to say, hey, I can come be a speaker at your conference, at your school, at your whatever about this subject or about this. And so it's wearing all of the hats with only one head and you wonder why writers are insane. Well, writers aren't sane because, well, we write because that's what keep maintains the insanity. Um, <laughs> it keeps the voices moving, keeps the voices moving. That way they're not just setting up camp um, on top of each other. Uh, yeah. So you're getting ready to head off to 20 to 50K. Um, mm -hmm. and you've got a talk you're going to be giving there, which is going to lead into that nonfiction book. Do you yeah. want to talk a little bit about this talk and kind of the importance of it and, sure. and what you hope people get out of that? So I often mention in lots of interviews and stuff, I just say life kicked me in the teeth in 2016. Mainly because... If I say what happens, it tends to derail things really, really hardcore. And especially if I'm on a panel, I don't want that derailing because it's not fair to the other panelists. And most of the time, it's not what the 
panel or discussion or interview is about. So I tend to just keep it like kick me in the teeth and people can fill in whatever they want. And I just keep going. Well, in 2016, my husband was killed. He was killed 10 days before our 10 year wedding anniversary. And he had been my biggest cheerleader, my biggest fan, even though he didn't like um, romances at all. He still was the one person who knew I could do it. So I took a year off dealing with grief, dealing with, you know, all the fun stuff that comes with death. Trust me, there's so much paperwork. And came back realizing that the person who was writing the day before he died and the person now were two different people. They didn't sound the same. The stories they told weren't the same. The things they cared about weren't the same. And so I had to sit back and figure out who the author Mel Todd was going to be and what she was going to write. And if you're somebody who's very big on an author's voice, and by voice, I mean how they tell the story, how they communicate through words, you will notice a difference between the voice I had before his death and after. Uh, for some people, it's a very big dissonance. And for other people, they're just like, eh, they're just different stories. But it meant that I had to learn how to write again. And when you're talking about something that does huge polar shifts of who you are internally, it isn't like riding a bike. It, it, it isn't. It is like being a cross-country skier and trying to figure out how to do slalom, however you say that word, downhill, you know, the little fast skis. You have to figure out how to do everything again. And so the book that I'm working on is called Art After Grief. And it's the talk that I'll do uh, 20 books. In 20 books, I'll be specifically talking about writing after grief. But a lot of what I talk about is acknowledging that grief is simply the word that we use to describe when you have lost something that matters to you. Grief is not always just death. It can be your marriage is over. It can be a bankruptcy. It can be losing something that was infinitely precious to you. You experience grief whenever you experience loss. And every loss changes us. Every huge joy changes us too. But usually we're much more welcoming and accepting about those changes in our life. I mean, I'll probably need to add a, a post notes after the book that say everything I talk about here also works after you just had a kid, because it's still a huge difference. The person you were before and the person you are after are two different people. And so that's what I'm going to talk about. The book itself will just talk about more of your art, because for some people, their art is painting. Some people it's sewing, some people it's baking. Your art can be whatever is that passion that you have to create. That's your art. It doesn't always have to be writing or something highfalutin. It can be something as simple as maybe that is how you clean your house is your art and you have to get back into it. So I'm going to talk about, you know, what grief is, the ways you can get through grief. And trust me, the only way out is through. 
And then how you can start when you realize that you're ready to begin again, but none of your old processes work. And we will see if I can write that out to be a book because it's not as easy as saying, just do it. Just do it is disingenuous and causes a lot of people to give up. You have to have a lot more grace with yourself than just do it. Well, and I mean, for me, and, and this is a talk I've given that I think ties into this is finding your new why. Because um, a lot of the time, one of the biggest things you have to look at is why you decide to do anything, right? Mm -hmm. And if, if money is the only motivation, then when you hit certain kinds of roadblocks, which can be a lot smaller than, than death, a lot of, a lot of small roadblocks blocks will be enough to derail people from taking on things that, that they truly love and want to do. But if you understand why you want to pursue, especially creative work, but any kind of work, if you understand your why, you can then take on the challenges, but you can also take on the rewards in a very different and much more beneficial way. If you are looking at that why, you understand the motivations, the rewards, and all those sorts of things. But it's also what helps you push through. But anytime you have something so major, so transformational, it cannot help but make you question your why and often change it. See, and I guess I, I, I'm one of these uh, authors who it's like, what What do you mean my why? If I don't, the voices in my head are going to drive me insane. Which is a good enough why, right? <laughs> yeah. My why is because otherwise I'm going to start stabbing people. And people would prefer if I don't do that. I, I, I don't understand. People don't like being stabbed. It's, a, you know, I guess. Well, you know, writers are crazy by, by nature. Um but there's a reason for that is the work's got to get out. The creativity has to get out. Mm -hmm. um, but even so, I think that there's that, that why factor change, you know, the, the voices we've got to get out change. Like you were talking about, you know, the voice, the how that gets them out on the page changes and the story changes, mm -hmm. the, the harmonic changes. Oh yeah. yeah. Very, very much so. I mean, for me, you will notice that most of my writing under Mel Todd doesn't have uh, romance star story arcs in them at all. Uh, the few sex scenes that I do have tend to be uh, more violent and not about sex as much about power. And mainly it's because even now I'm still not ready to write somebody else's happy ending. And that one, I suck at writing sex scenes. But mostly I didn't feel like writing... I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that I'm saying that I'm not cut out for love or anything like that. It's just more of I don't really have the desire to write the love story arc from "Hi, who are you? Oh my gosh, I love you. I can't live without you." That story arc because it still just hurts too much, and I'd rather blow up Australia. It's just more entertaining. Yeah, well, I blow up California for. A variety of reasons but you know we there, there's something to be said for it's easier to get rid of the body on the page than anywhere else yes it is <laughs> well when does Corey's final book drop and where can they find it uh the final book called balanced luck will show up on amazon bright and early in the morning of november 3rd 
And it will be in Amazon, basically, in KU for the first 90 days. And then starting next year, everything in the Twisted Luck series is being pulled and it will go wide. So we will see how that works at that point. And where can everybody find you, Badash Publishing, all that kind of good stuff? Um, you can find me at badashpublishing.com. Uh, you can also find me under melpod.com. So I suck at updating both websites because I'm just like that. However, Badash Publishing does have a store and you can buy most of the stuff through the store, which I am good about updating. <laughs> Um, other than that, I have 20 books to 50K coming up in November. And then I will be at Chattacon in January up in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And then I will be at Superstars Writing Conference in Colorado Springs, Colorado. And they keep assuring me there's no actual Starga Stargate under Cheyenne Mountain. I still don't believe them, but I can't get anybody to let me in to check. So instead, I will be at a conference talking more about grief. <laughs> Well, I just got back from Denver. The Illuminati did not take me in a, at the airport. So, you know. Not, <sighs> yeah, you know they're, they're just really letting us down. I mean, come on. I could keep a secret. Just let me see the start date. Yeah, I mean, I, there was no sign-up booth, no nothing. I mean, I just, I don't know what to say. Yeah, yeah. Well, Mel, we will be chatting soon. And for everybody else, we'll see you again next week. This has been Creating Pros. Bye, everybody. <laughs>